You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Once again, welcome to all of you. And for those of you who are watching, joining us, listening online, great to have you with us as well. If I haven't had a chance to meet you and you're our guest, my name is Jay. And again, on behalf of everyone around you, we're really glad that you're with us here this morning. So we are continuing on in our study of the book of James. And as we prepare to do so, I'd like to tell you a fish story. And as I was going to tell my fishing story this morning, I was reminded of this story. This is our Gary Brashears. He is part of our preaching team and one of our elders. You see him up here occasionally. This was Gary Wednesday. He caught his first salmon on the Columbia River. And I wanted to show this to you because next time Gary preaches, if he comes to you and says, yeah, I caught this 40-pound salmon, you can say, no, no, we saw the picture. It was a big fish, but it wasn't 40 pounds, right? But this, I thought this was kind of fun to celebrate together. But really what I want to tell you about to start our time in God's Word is, is a fishing story, but it's not really about fishing. It's about a fire. And let me explain myself. So in my family of origin, fishing was, was a big deal. We, we loved to go fishing together. It was one of the primary things we did as a family. We'd go camping and fishing. And opening, opening day was always really important to us as well. And at a, sp- a time in the spring, not unlike now, where it was just really a wet spring, raining constantly, opening day came about mid-May. And at that time, we lived down in Eugene. I was a middle school student and high school student in those years. And in particular, I was a middle school student with this story I'm I'm telling you this morning. And uh, we lived about four miles from the McKenzie River. And so if you walk down through a number of neighborhoods and cross through a couple farmers' mint fields, you got to the McKenzie River. And so opening day, my mom knew that I wanted to go fishing and happened to fall on this one Saturday. So I got up early in the morning and God bless my mom. She packed me this, uh, this little backpack with eggs and bacon and a frying pan. And I was all set. I was going to make breakfast down there after I built my fire and maybe catch a fish. So went on down early to, uh, to this little island, really, that kind of sat out a little bit in the, in the river. You had to wait a little bit to get to it, but it was just kind of our island that we would go to to fish, my friends and me. And one of my friends met me there that morning. And as we got there, it started to drizzle. And of course, it had been raining just like now, just constantly for days. And so everything was wet. And I didn't really plan or anticipate that. So we tried to build a fire and we just couldn't get anything to light. So my friend said, I will run home because he didn't live far away, and I will get my dad's lighter fluid, and we'll, and we'll start a fire with that. And I said, great. So he ran home, came back, and he comes back carrying a can of paint thinner. And he said, yeah, you know, and by the way, this is empty. Don't get too nervous. There's nothing in here. But he brought this can of paint thinner with him, and he said, I couldn't find my dad's lighter fluid. So, so I thought we'd use paint thinner. That's flammable, isn't it? And it is. It is flammable. And so I got a couple caps full and dumped it on the fire and, you know, wanted to be moderate with what we were doing there and lit it and nothing happened. And so I thought, well, if a little is good, then a lot is even better. So I pulled the cap off it and I basically emptied all of it on this huge bundle of sticks that we had put. Yeah, yeah, a little Forrest Gump theology here this morning. Stupid is 
That's stupid dust. And so I tossed the match on there and whoosh. And by the way, I'd had my little skillet with eggs and bacon right there because I was just really excited to get it cooking quick. And it did. And whoosh, this huge fire. It singed my eyebrows, you know, singed my hair. And it speed cooked the bacon and the eggs right into the skillet. I mean, it was done. It just, so speed cooking bacon and eggs doesn't work, just so you know. And it's probably not a good idea to start a fire with paint thinner. And that's kind of the thing when it comes to wisdom, isn't it? You either have it or you don't. Is it real wise to start a fire with paint thinner? And of course the answer is no. And this morning we look at this reality of, of wisdom and the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. But what I just said earlier isn't actually correct, at least not according to what James would say. Wisdom isn't something that some people have and some people don't. What James would say is, oh, everybody has wisdom. Everybody watching, listening to this, everybody here, even me, we all have wisdom. The real question is, what kind of wisdom do you have? There is godly, biblical wisdom, but then there is worldly wisdom, which really is foolishness. It's, it's, it's folly. It's like trying to start a fire with a whole can of paint thinner. So which one do you and I have? Well, that's where we're going to go here this morning. And as we consider this and ponder and wrestle with this, this reality that you have one kind of wisdom or the other, let's make sure we're on the same page with with what wisdom is. So this is the textbook definition. I didn't memorize this, so I'm going to read it. It's a quality of experience, knowledge, or good judgment. Okay. I think we could also say wisdom is the, the effective, productive use of knowledge. And in many ways, we could say, you know what? It's just, it's knowing how to get things done. And that's a fair That's a fair description of wisdom too. So the question isn't what kind of, rather, the question isn't do you have wisdom? The real question is what kind of wisdom do you and I have? How how are you and I living our lives? And how do you recognize the difference between the two? And that's where James is going to take us in this amazing passage. It's short, but it is loaded. And as we do so, um, this is James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." So how do you recognize the two different kinds of wisdom? Well, he begins to tell us some of the dynamics of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom produces a good life. Deeds done in in humility. That's, That's how you recognize it. And he's really contrasting these two kinds of wisdom, a life of humility versus a life 
a life of pride. And so right out of the gate, it tells us godly wisdom is sourced in humility. And I mean, this is a very simple definition, but humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. This isn't about value. It's about motives. It's about not only how you live your life, but the decisions you make and what drives what drives those? And the good news for you and me, even people who start fires with paint thinner, is that godly wisdom can be learned and acquired. And it's really important that we understand that and get our hands around that and our heads and hearts around that. We have to dismiss this notion that, you know, some people have wisdom and some people don't, and for the people who don't, there's no hope. Scripture is exactly the opposite of that. I was reading in Proverbs earlier this week, in Proverbs chapter one, chapter two, chapter eight, it talks about this reality that godly wisdom is something that can be acquired. There's, there's hope for all of us. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. We can acquire godly, godly wisdom and we need to and we want to because look at the alternative. The alternative is foolishness, is worldly wisdom. And you can recognize this by envy, selfish ambition, Boasting, bragging, denying the truth, disorder, every evil practice. You want to know how to recognize foolishness or worldly wisdom? There it is. There's, there's some descriptors. That describes a life, of, a life of pride. And that's really what this is about. Worldly wisdom is sourced in, in pride. Now, just again, so we're defining terms. Our culture most of the time views pride as a good thing. And pride can be a good thing in the sense that, yes, we should have value. We should have self-esteem, for sure. But that's not what this pride is being talked about in James. This is about ego, about edging God out of, of your life. And look at the contrast between that kind of life and a life of righteousness. It's based on a foundation of purity. It's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. It's about, it's about being a peacemaker. And we could spend the rest of our time just talking about these realities and what they mean and, and how we live them out. But I would just like to briefly run with this reality of peacemakers. It talks about being peace-loving and it talks about being a peacemaker. And it's important for us to understand that there is a significant difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And sometimes in our relationships, we get them confused. Peacekeepers are folks who avoid conflict, who will sometimes deny truth in order to keep the peace, and who don't want to rock the boat. And that's not what this is calling us to be about at all. Peacemakers, on the other hand, stand for and speak the truth. They will steer into conflict when it's necessary. They not only say yes, they also say no. And this is such a high value to us in our relationships here with our team at Grace that invariably when we're talking with something, talking with someone, interviewing them for a position here at Grace, and obviously they're checking us out and interviewing us as well, one of the first questions we ask is, will you please tell us the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? And then we'll talk about what that tangibly looks like. 
because it's such an important value for a godly life. So, are you a peacekeeper? Or are you a peacemaker? We'll give that a further test drive in just a little bit. But our world desperately needs peacemakers. Because when you're a peacemaker, there's a harvest of righteousness that, that follows you. So I listened to a, a sermon about this very passage by a pastor down in California, Twin Lakes Church specifically. His name is Relaine, Rene Schleffler. And he came up with this test that I've modified and used for our purposes, but I definitely want to give credit where credit is due. But we're going to take the eye test together. Not the eye test, but the eye test of our hearts. And we're going to do some assessment together about are we living according to godly wisdom or are we living according to worldly wisdom? And for those of you who want to, um, you know, really be a part of this, on the back of your sermon notes is this test and then what we'll look at after that, the cure for this disease that's known as eye disease. And this is where it goes. Symptoms of eye disease. I am quick to argue. And by the way, everything we're going to look at now is sourced in James chapter 4, where Sean will be taking us next week. So we'll look deeper at all these things. We're just going to do a flyby for now. But am I quick to argue? Well, let's, let's think about that. So you ever notice that people seem to be angry these days? Have you driven in traffic lately? <laughs> the, other, the other night, I'm, I'm driving and it's pouring like it has been all week or most of the week. And this guy changes lanes right in front of me. And he didn't see this other car that was coming. And there was plenty of room. I mean, he maybe cut him off a little bit. But this guy stands on his horn and then he accelerates right up on this other guy's bumper. And you can tell he's angry. Or have you stood in a return line at a store recently? You know, this is a whole other story that we don't have time to get into, but it'll make an illustration down the road, I promise you. But I'm working on one of our cars this weekend, and something goes south, and I have to go get a part at O'Reilly's, and I'm standing in this very long line, trying to be patient. And there's a guy at the counter. There's only two folks who are helping, and one of them's really busy, and he, he still didn't get to someone else by the time it became my turn with this other guy, but this other guy I'm waiting on is talking to a customer who's getting angry with him that he doesn't have his part. It's like the guy can't, the associate can't really do anything about it, but the guy is just angry that he doesn't have what he needs. But it's not just traffic and return stores. You paid attention to politics at all lately? Been on social at all lately? People are angry. Is that you? Does that describe you? And maybe you don't stylize yourself as angry, but it doesn't take anger to be argumentative. Some of us are profoundly defensive. When someone in your life comes to you and talks to you, how often do you read into what they're saying? And you're instantly ready to argue, instantly ready to defend yourself, instantly ready to fight. How often do you feel attacked by, by someone close to you 
when they're not attacking you at all? Or how often do you feel criticized when they're not criticizing you at all? I thought I already confessed to this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fair. I agree it's not fair. Because I'm, I'm in your tribe, Matt. Because my bride would tell you there are times that I am defensive when I don't need to be. When Jamie will say something to me and I'm instantly ready to argue. Or I'm feeling criticized. So this actually is a symptom of eye disease, is being really quick to argue. It has many different looks, but there it is. But there's another symptom of eye disease, and it is I'm continually dissatisfied. Did you notice what was in that list of how you recognize foolishness? Envy was there, right? Wanting what someone else has. And it seems like we don't talk about envy very often, but I think we should because we all do it. And many of us do it quite often. And envy is one of those things that's so insidious, it creeps into your heart before you realize it's even there. Many of you know I drive an 05 Toyota Tacoma. I love my truck, love my little four-wheel drive. I always wanted a little Toyota four-wheel drive and I've, I've had it for some years now. Um, we bought it with cash, so, you know, it's paid off. And I love my Toyota. But you know what the problem with it is? It's not red. It's blue. It's a blue Toyota, which, you know, I, I like it, but, but it's not red. And the other day, I saw a Toyota Tundra go by that was red. And all of a sudden, my Tacoma, eh? But the Tundra, okay. Yeah, we could work with that. I mean, my, my little Tacoma is a little four-cylinder. It gets great mileage. I clear 20 miles to the gallon with that little guy most of the time in the city. I mean, I, I love it, especially these days with gas, $100 a gallon, right? So I, I, I really love my little truck, but it is a little truck and a Tundra. I mean, it's a V8. It's a bigger engine. I mean, what if I need to tow something? I don't have anything I need to tow, but I might. I might need something someday that I need to tell. Do you see where this is going? And it happens all the time. We're immersed in it. We are constantly told by our culture, you fill in the blank. Whatever you have is not good enough, and you need that. And by the way, you have that. Hey, Tundra guy driving my red Tundra, give that back. You know. <laughs> but it's insidious. And it creeps in. And boy, can it go so directly to our hearts. God, you owe me. How many of us walk around at times with this sense of entitlement that God owes us? Or you owe me. And that builds resentment, right? Or I owe me. I deserve this. I've earned this. All symptoms of foolish worldly wisdom. And when that begins to happen, we begin to take in the spirit of this world. We stop worshiping the one true God and we start worshiping this unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And so it goes. And Many times scripture talks about the world. Like for instance, in John 3, 16, in the gospel of John, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Well, 
when that word is used, world, it means people. It means us. God so loves people that he sends his son. But oftentimes, especially with James, but John too, and in other parts of the Bible, when it's talking about the world, it's not talking about people. It's talking about the evil world system, this broken system that entices us, tempts us to envy, that draws us down, draws us down that, that road. And we constantly have to be vigilant about our thinking because from right thinking comes right living, which, which leads us to this. And this is endemic in our culture is that it's so easy to judge. And interestingly, the context of this is James is talking about us, the church, Jesus followers, when he's saying not to judge. When is the last time you gave someone the benefit of the doubt? When's the last time I've given someone the benefit of the doubt? You want to live distinctively in our incredibly, profoundly broken culture these days? Just give someone the benefit of the doubt. Don't always assume there's a hidden agenda. Don't always assume that they have it out for you. Don't always attribute the worst possible motives or assume the worst about other people. But it's endemic in our, in our culture. And again, we're not saying we shouldn't judge. Actually, Jesus tells us to judge, but we are to judge carefully and wisely. It doesn't mean that we don't call evil evil. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth in love, but we do speak the truth in love. And it's so easy for us to go down this path of condemning others. It happens all the time in every facet and sector of our culture. We got a problem. I have a problem. It's an I problem. So what's the cure? Well, again, this is all built out of where we're going next week in James chapter 4. But for starters, I need to recognize the source of my self-centered pride. There isn't just an enemy out there. There's an enemy in here. Now, you begin to think about it. You think you begin to grid brokenness and sinfulness. And really, every single major evil inflicted on one human being by another ultimately comes down to pride. And it's a historic problem. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they chose to disobey God, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, chose not to trust God, to not believe he truly was good, they bought into the lie that he was holding out on them, and they took matters into their own hands. And, and this, this broken, sinful pridefulness entered the world, and it resides in every human heart, including yours and mine, and it's something that we, we have to do battle with. And yes, they had help. We have an adversary. We have an enemy who wants us to sin. And, and again, the caricature of our culture is, okay, Satan is this little guy in a red suit with pointy ears and you know, a little pitchfork and a goatee, and he has a British accent, and he goes around tempting people, right? That's... <laughs> No, that, no. We have an enemy who, who wants us to sin and wrong one another and wrong God. And he's not omniscient and omnipresent like God. He's not all powerful. He can't be everywhere at once. And most of the time when we're getting tempted, it's not necessarily directly by him. 
It's by this evil world system that he has built and developed. And so we resist Satan by resisting it, by resisting the world around us. And a big part of that is we got to resign. We got to resign as general manager of the universe because many of us have taken it upon ourselves to do just that. Do me a favor. Take your finger and point it up like this. Yeah, everybody do this. You who are watching and listening too. Okay. Say God. God. Now point to you. Not. <laughs> right? I find that helpful. I find that instructive in the daily rhythms of my life. Because somehow we don't necessarily buy that. We presume, we assume, we control other people around us. You know, it's a classic movie made a long time ago, but Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty is tired of how God is running the universe, so God finally gives him what he wants, and God shows up as Morgan Freeman and, you know, basically says, okay, you think you can run things better than I can? Go ahead. And it's an absolute disaster, and by the end of the movie, Jim Carrey is in tears on his knees saying, I give up. I, I cannot... I cannot run the universe the way we do. Do you believe that? Do you act like that? Do you live like that? Do I? Boy, we got to resign that role. That job is already taken. But the other reality is this. There's this constant realignment with God, constantly realigning our hearts with, with his. And again, Next week in chapter four, it will say, humble yourself before God. First Peter chapter five, verse six says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. I love that verse. And I say it often to give myself perspective. And interestingly, that word for humble in James and in Peter is a military word that means remember your rank. Order your life around the reality of there is a God and you're not him. And so therefore, even when it's difficult, even when you don't want to, even when you don't feel like it, you trust and obey him. You wait on him. You cling to him, even when it makes no sense, even when it doesn't feel like you really should be doing that. You choose to realign your heart with God. And this is a day-by-day -day thing, an hour-by-hour -hour thing, sometimes a moment-by-moment -moment thing, depending, depending on the day. And this is so fundamental that we remember God's grace. In James chapter 4, it does say that God gives us more grace, more grace than our brokenness, more grace than our sinfulness. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's lifted out of Proverbs 3, chapter 34 in the Old Testament. It appears there and it appears in 1 Peter 5 when Peter is talking about this same reality. We have to remember God's grace. And God's grace, as we define terms once again, is God's unmerited, freely given love for the sake of right relationship with him and right relationship with others. But we often forget the second part. The second part goes something like this. God's grace is the empowerment to trust and obey him and to serve him and others. As hard as pervasive 
as challenging, as discouraging at times as eye disease is, there is a cure. It's right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's responding to his grace, receiving him into our lives as our Lord and Savior. He literally transforms us from the inside out, gives us a new heart, new motives, new outlook, calls forth the identity that we were always created to be and have. And then if that wasn't enough, he gives us the power in our daily lives despite our eye disease struggles at times, to live that out. My friends, you can do this. You can be who God has called you to be. You can live out your true identity. You can trust and obey him even when you don't feel like it. And you can reap the blessings and the harvest of righteousness that he promises us as a result. So we started with this reality of humility, and I would like to end with it. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and we'll enter into music worship here in just a minute. So, in the spirit of being a peacemaker, I wronged um, a couple of our staff here recently, and um, knew that I had. And so, wrestled with that and chose to go to them and to talk that through and to ask forgiveness. And forgiveness was, was granted. But there was a time in my life I would have never done that. And sometimes it's very difficult to humble yourself and to do what you know God is calling you to do or what he's asking you to do. And as we think about our relationships with him and our relationships with others, the humility that he can give us and wants us to have comes from, comes from his grace. And if you and I will respond to that grace, he brings a harvest of, of righteousness. And that's, that's who I want to be. It's humble before God. Not wise in my own eyes, but wise in his. And I can, and you can, through the empowerment of his grace. So as we worship together, as we sing these words of this song that talks about giving us faith, would you make that a prayer? Don't just sing this words, true, sing these words as we always encourage you to do, make this a worship response, a life response. God, give me faith to trust what you say and to reap the blessings and harvest of righteousness that he promises us as a result. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you rescue us from a life of brokenness and sinfulness and selfishness. Thank you, God, that we do not have to live like that. We don't have to settle for that. That through knowing you, as our Lord and Savior, through responding to your grace, we can live out who you've truly called us to be. So would you give us faith to believe that, to own that, and to experience that? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>